concerned with hoorah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Hello, Deadbeats! I'm your host, Gabby Dunn And this is Bad With Money. Hello. This season on the show, we're doing a lot of back and forth, zooming out to see the big picture about the economy, like why are things the way they are? Which is bad. It's usually bad. But we're also zooming in. We're looking close up at people's individual relationships with money and how it shapes their lives. Yes, there are structural reasons why we're bad with money. And yes, there are personal choices we make that totally make things worse. We are complicated. We are human. We are dancer. We've never been role models. But also, the system is messed up. So it's a lot to unpack, and it's exhausting. So this week, let's gather around the campfire and get kind of psychedelic with it. I'm talking to a financial guru in this episode, but a guru in the proper sense of the word. A woman with deep hippie vibes, Vicki Robin. I met Vicki at a cafe in Seattle along with another amazing woman who we're going to talk to later in the season. We were all being profiled in the New York Times. <laughs> no big deal. I'm fancy now. The idea was to get the old, middle, and new generations of financial advice givers together to see how we compare. I was the third wave financial guru, which, what an honor, but I also put that in air quotes. Vicky is the co-author with her late partner, Joe Dominguez, of the book, Your Money or Your Life. Ahead of our interview in Seattle, I read Vicky's book with heavy skepticism. A first wave financial guru read to me like a first wave feminist. I awaited heavy doses of sexism, racism, ableism, transphobia, you name it. But none of that came. Instead, I found myself loving Your Money or Your Life. And I hate almost every money self-help book I've ever read. And I've read... A lot of them, probably more than the average person. This one even had steps to follow, nine. It doesn't get more prescriptive than that. But beyond the ideas of what you can do about money, Vicky's book is like a spiritual tome. There was a lot of talk about community, sharing, life energy, and all sorts of stuff I thought was only going on in the East Los Angeles queer community. Obviously not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know about hippies, folks. Okay, you all remember my dad. Vicky and Joe's book resonates because it's so grounded in feelings in a way no other finance book I've read has been. Other than my own, available now wherever books are sold. It's called Bad With Money. When I interviewed another iconic financial figure in the premiere of this season, Susie Orman, she called in from her private island off the coast of Florida. Vicky also called in from an island, but it's one she lives on near Seattle where she rents out the rooms in her home and is very connected to the politics of the local community. She talked minutia about it. If you ever meet her, don't get her started. (laughs) All in all, Your Money or Your Life has sold over a million copies. There's a new revised edition that came out just last year, and when it was first released in 1992, it was a bestseller right away. So, if you'll allow it, this week, let's get a little hippy-dippy about money, the cult of consumerism, the circle of we, and the fire movement. So who is Joe and how did you guys come together to to write this book? Yeah, so Joe was one of the first people on Wall Street to develop a technical analysis, which is really how people invest now. So mm-hmm. he he never graduated from college. He was um, tested at genius level. Um, he was very much 
a rebel and stumbled on to being uh, working at an investment firm on Wall Street because a buddy of his invited him to work there. And so he applied his engineering training, which, you know, he never got the degree, but he got the training, to the flow of money and stuff, you know, money through the market. He was just like observing patterns. And he sort of got on to that there was, you know, anyway, this is obvious to people now, but he was one of the first people to see that you don't look at the fundamentals, you look at the patterns uh, and develop. Of the stock market, yeah. you mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And um, I mean, he was able eventually, he was able to say, by the end of the week, uh, there will be a global leader who will be deposed. And by Friday, it happened. And he'd said it on Monday, because he could see it in the movement of the market. So, oh. yeah, so that's the, you know, you know, he was, he was at genius level. And I met him after he'd become financially independent. He, he said he wanted to be FI. By the time he was thirty. Well, what does that what does that mean? Because this was this like a thing that was going on at the time. Was this no, right? So, like, what did that not. what did it, that even mean at that at that point? Well, basically, you know, Joe actually did the program. <laughs> he, he invented without it being a program. So he monitored his expenses and he minimized his spending mm-hmm. uh, drastically and maximized his savings Mm -hmm. and set an intention for being financially independent by the time he was 30. What does financially independent mean or what did it mean then? It means you have an income sufficient to your needs apart from what you do on a daily basis. Okay. So it's not being dependent on a job or a contract or a gig or anything for your basic income. It doesn't mean that you never make money again, doesn't mean you never work at a job again, doesn't mean you don't develop another profession. It just simply means that, you know, it's it's um, DIY, you know, financial security. You know, and people use that platform of financial independence for many things. Mm-hmm. But for Joe, it was basically he wanted to travel and he was on a spiritual quest. And a lot of us at that time we're on that quest. Yeah, we were talking about that when we met because I tried to get you to say that you were. I was like, it was like it was the the that time period, right? Everybody was sort of like joining cults and doing acid, <laughs> and you were like, and you were like trying to be like, no. And then later you were like, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, look at look at. Uh, so let's just talk about cults for a second. Um, oh, please, culture, like culture. Yeah, right. It has cult in there. Right. A culture is a cult. It's mm-hmm. a set of beliefs and practices, um, rituals that the people in the cult believe will bring them the optimum happiness. You know, yeah. And help so that's them a survive. religion. That's everything. That's a religion. That's every. That's your. Fu- excuse me. That's your family. <laughs> a family yeah. is a cult. I believe me, mine certainly is. <laughs> So anyway, what we were, you know, we were an intentional community. So we were basically sort of leaving the cult of consumerism and creating our own cult. You know, we really thought we were creating a new society. You know, we thought we were creating forms. We were looking at, you know, psychological, spiritual, Mm -hmm. cultural. We were looking at everything, saying, okay, does this hold up in the light of truth? Anyway, so we were very radical at the time. And, so this, um, so th- what? When did you and Joe meet? Um, like what year? Way back when, way back when, in the seventies. 
Okay, um, so right. So we're primed for this kind of thing, like this sort of rebellious movement type stuff. And so like it was a very consumerist culture. I'm just trying to explain to my my listeners. It was like very consumerist culture. You guys met and your whole thing was like or his whole thing and your whole thing were like, okay, we're going to try to not spend that much money actually. And then it sort of turns out that that is most people. Because I think a lot of financial advice, and this is what spoke to me about the book, is like I think a lot of financial advice is like assuming that everyone is just like out there buying $300 shirts and like spending so much money and that's why they're broke or poor. When in actuality, most people are actually quite frugal, are actually quite like, you know, um, cautious of where they're spending their money and yet they still don't have as much income as they would like, or they still don't have a handle on their finances. So rather than addressing the real problem, which is what I think you guys eventually did, there was this thing of like, well, if you just stop buying, you know, uh, your video games, then you'll be in a better financial situation. And then the people, the majority of people who had been like, I literally don't, I literally don't buy video games were sort of like, well, then where does that leave me? Right. That was kind of what was going on. (laughs) Did I sum it up? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, what video games? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, no, no I'm talking about in the 90s. There were no video games. I there. know, I'm talking about in the 90s when your book came out, not in the 70s. <laughs> okay. I meant by the time the book came out. I jumped ahead. I jumped ahead okay. from then okay. to when the book came yeah. out. Yeah, right. Uh, I do want to, like, roll back a little bit. Sure. Um, it was never about totally about minimizing spending, although, you know, that's what we did. It was about maximizing meaning, purpose, and happiness. Yes. And so, you know, the current FIRE movement and a lot of advice is totally just simply looking at the the mechanical and material aspects of this. And um, that is not what we did. Those things were like secondary sort of hygiene practices to be able to be mistresses and masters of our own time, to be able to meditate, to be able to take walks with our friends, to be Mm -hmm. able to write poetry, to be able to um, be of service, to be able to help others. Mm -hmm. There's so much life outside of the world of jobs and making money and there's an immense existence mm-hmm. you know being in nature walking in the woods communing with the mushrooms you know whatever sure. you want to say it's like our imagination in this society is compl- we live in money we're completely constrained by the thought this is a capitalist system i need a job i make money and that's how my life has meaning and that is absolutely not what we're doing so yes now that said, uh, that correction made, yes, it's it's um, basically what we would say to people is, this is not deprivation. We're not telling you to not have things you want. We're telling you to not buy things that you don't want, never use, mm-hmm. you know, and can't sell because you're embarrassed you bought them. What was the what was the reaction to it when it came out? Uh, it was uh, a New York Times bestseller within seven weeks. And people were, like, just super into it? Yeah, so here's the deal. It was a New York Times bestseller, really, because we were on Oprah, and she held up the book 
at the end of our segment, which was totally wild because it was the old Oprah where they would they would put Christians and lions together. You know, they would put yeah. people whose like problems are not soluble and experts who were supposed to solve them in 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So it was that kind of Oprah. And she held up the book at the end and she said, this is a great book. It'll change your life. And then, you know, two days later, it was a New York Times bestseller. So thank you, Oprah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we all say thank you, Oprah, every day. Yeah, thank you, Oprah. And, um Number one, the appeal, I think, was that we spoke to the silent majority of people in the United States, at least at that time, who were uh, naturally frugal, you know, who Mm -hmm. were living within their means, who were living simply, who, you know, were trying to avoid debt or paying off their debt. You know, they were the responsible financial citizens, and they had... um, no spokesperson because the consumer culture uh, lauded overconsumption. Yeah. So in a way, I, I used to go, I used to in my talks, and I gave like hundreds, if not thousands. Uh, I used to say, "I'm just making the world safe for frugality. I'm standing up here. Don't look bad. My clothes aren't shabby, and I live on five thousand dollars a year." So, <laughs> you know, and and the other thing, Gabby, to know that that I mean, Joe and I weren't normal. We were mm-hmm. very edgy from the get-go. Uh, we were pushing edges of uh, lifestyle, consciousness. Uh, we were back to the landers. We, you know, we. Mm-hmm. So we were not your normal financial planners. And Joe was the one who developed the um, program that's in your money, your life. That really is the basis, whether people know it or not, for the current fire movement. So. What is FIRE? What is the FIRE movement, just for people that don't know? Yeah, so a movement has grown up called FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early. Mm-hmm. And every generation has has some subset that becomes very conscious of materialism and consumerism and happiness. And yeah. this generation, I think that the breakout bloggers were early retirement extreme, um, Jacob, and Mr. Money Mustache. So yeah. these are writers that have been around for a decade or a little bit more and who've been promoting this idea that, that of basically spending less, earning more, you know, getting out of debt, increasing like extreme, the gap. Extreme, extreme spending less. That's sort of the yeah, thing. Yeah, and it's, you know, I mean, nobody is into suffering. I mean, in a way, people get bragging rights like, I'm saving 50% of my income. Oh, I'm saving yeah. 75 so, so basically, it's a rapid uh, accumulation of a nest egg. Mm-hmm. And then there are some ways that people in the movement normally invest their money for a return. And there's a, something called the 4% rule, which is if you are investing in a certain way, you can take 4% per year from the earnings from your investment and never have your nest egg run out. It may be earning 7%, but you're taking 4%. So even in the bad times, it's like still, you're st- it's still okay. More from Vicky after the break. And now back to the show. A lot of the book is like recalculating your thinking. Like one thing that really stuck out to me and that I've been thinking about a lot is the section about community where, you know, you talk about, that your community is actually a financial resource in the sense that uh, you, if the more people you know, the more you can reach out 
and ask for help or ask for to borrow things instead of buying things or ask uh, to like trade clothes or, you know, this thing where you actually don't view your the people around you as a financial resource when in actuality they are. And that like sort of did something to my brain where I was like, oh, you can just, yeah, if you are going to a wedding, ask your friend, like, if they have something you can wear. If you are, you know, if you need, like, a, to move, you know, you if the more friends you have, the more, like, set up you are financially is sort of the, the thesis of that segment. And I thought that was so fascinating. Like, where did that come from? Is that just something that you guys had experienced? Oh, yeah. When I was, you know, a kid, I would organize the neighborhood into events like parades and plays. I've always been super social. Uh-huh. For me, yes, it's how did I get that way? I think I'm naturally that way. And then when you, I lived in a shared household in Seattle for many years. And when you do that, you realize, you know, in our household, there were two people who had uh, nursing training. So if I had, you know, something that was amiss with me, I mm-hmm. would just like, you know, ask somebody, you know, so there was like, and it wasn't even a a trading system in that sense. You know, I call it the circle of we. And inside your circle of we, what I call your circle of we, it's a natural trading system because, you know, that's what you do. Somebody does the laundry, you know, and somebody, you know, empties a dishwasher. And people are not accounting for it unless they're really, you know, strange. You know, so basically you expand and expand and expand your circle of we, your circle of what I call mutuality and reciprocity, where it's not just what you can get, but it's the pleasure of giving. Yeah. Yeah. What you can provide. And it made me offer things like friends who literally a friend was like, I'm going to a wedding. And she was like joking and was like, I'm going to a wedding. I'm going to look so ugly. And I was like, oh, my God, take whatever you want from my closet, like borrow something. And like that's. And, like, that's not something that I would have would have occurred to me, I think. Very cool. Yeah, it was. It was, like, really—and, you know, it's interesting, too, as, as a queer woman, we're talking about intentional communities. I think, for me in particular, I've sort of lucked out where, like, the queer community of Los Angeles is so small and so, like, everyone's sort of in each other's business anyway that— like, it's just a family on its own to begin with. Like, all the lesbians, you know, like, all the queer women are just kind of— all know each other and so there is like a, a a thing already happening there that I think a lot of people maybe wouldn't wouldn't have no, like wouldn't have noticed in their own lives or like even if you live in a dorm you know that's that's an, a community that's you know you're just in you don't even realize the communities you're in I mean are there other th- examples of like how people like my listeners how they can sort of in- engage in that kind of stuff Sure, sure. I mean, I've been actually thinking a lot about this. Um, So community theater. Yeah. uh, Your yoga class, your church. Yeah. You know, we are not, I hope that people are rechurching themselves because church is the most amazing system of reciprocity. And, you know, and part of reciprocity is that, you know, or the queer community, you know, it exists not as a totally mechanistic thing. It exists because you have a shared value. You know, yeah. we're queer. You know? Yeah. We understand each other. We're queer. We understand each other. You know, we've taken Jesus as our savior. Whatever it is. We understand each other. Yeah. You know, whatever it is, you know, the more circles you join. I, um, where I live, uh, I became aware of an issue at the north end of my island 
around uh, the expansion of the Navy jet fighter pilot training. Yeah. And it's been major issue. And so I've developed this whole network that I adore um, up in the north end of the island. And I'm on the south end. And boy, they are like separate uh, communities. <laughs> but now I have that community. I started an improv troupe. And now I'm in the theater community. It's just, it's, it's you know, how many circles of we, if you will, just using that, sure. that term. How many circles of we... Can you participate in? Um, well, I think people are scared to ask for help, too, or, like, feel very isolated. But it's also, like, if you are a person who offers help then and, you, and you're and you scared to ask, but you start offering, then other people can feel like they can ask you, too, is what I've exactly. found. Exactly. Yeah, it was so it's, fascinating. Yeah, yeah you got to kick over the system. You're like, you know, <laughs> you have a latent system of the queer community in L.A., if somebody offers, yeah, you know, then it it sort of kicks over the engine of reciprocity. If nobody offers or asks, yeah, then you know, and we're scared to ask. You know, I tell people like, you know, just if you want to form like a you know an alternative currency, if you want to form like time dollars, just look at the list of what people want to offer because everybody wants to offer, but it takes somebody asking. To kick over the system. Yeah. So just see what people want to offer and then ask them for it. I created a, what I call block barter books when I lived in Seattle, two block system. And we created a trading network. And 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 it was just, I looked at the list of things that people offered and I started, <laughs> I started taking them. But that may, see this, the thing that's so interesting about cults or societies (laughs) is that they're systems of mutual obligation. Okay, yeah. And the denser the system of mutual obligation, the stronger, the stronger the community is. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And now back to our interview with Vicky. What's a barter or what's the, what were you talking about? The system? Oh, the block barter books. This was before there were computers or anything. And we just had everybody fill out a sheet of things that they needed and things that they had and things that they loved to give and services they they would be happy to provide. So there was yeah. four lists. And then we we copied all the lists and, and handed them out to the people in the system. So we all knew. Wow. So, yeah, so we just created that system. And then we, we found, I mean, we, it was before computers. So we used to have a tally sheet attached to these, this, like, book of offers and asks. And um, we found that, you know, it you didn't need to tally it after a while because nobody cared. Right. Yeah. We did. I did something similar with some friends a long time ago where I made a, a, a Google spreadsheet and everyone's name was in it. And I wrote, write down what you're good at, like what you can do. Like, are you good at gardening? Are you, you know, are you good at fixing computers? Like, what are you good at? And then write down what something that you would want someone else to be good at or what you need, what like you are not good at or whatever. And then people could go in there if they had a problem and see who on the list they could ask. Great. Did it work? Yeah. Pe- that Yes. People should be doing that if, the, if they have like a group of friends. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, on the other side of it, I'll say that 
participating in your local money system, the businesses that have set themselves up um, in your community. So maybe you could trade zucchini, you know, till the cows come home. Sure. But if you go to the farmer's market and buy Tom's zucchini, Tom's farm stays, you know, in business. So you start to see that when you enter the money economy, you have some power to support a thriving uh, network of businesses in your community. And you go like, okay, it's 10% more to buy the book from the local bookstore than going to Amazon, but sure. I'm going to do it. So it's not just saying we should, you know, we should strive for a non-monetary economy. It's to say there's a lot of ways we go into the monetary economy because we're incompetent <laughs> or we're afraid mm -hmm. to ask. And so we need to shore that one up, our, our the the non-monetary economy. And in the monetary economy, you ask yourself, like, you know, I'm going to spend my dollars on something. And what kind of world do I want to buy along with the product? Um, mm -hmm. And it's a tough go, you know, it's like because it's, our world is not designed that way. Right. Right. You have to be going around. You have to be consciously doing the opposite of what you're, it's built to do. Yeah. And part of, you know, part of the nonstop working at a job and identifying with your job and your bank account and how you look, part of the problem there is you have no time to be more thoughtful and maybe take a little extra effort in your purchasing. I would say the, the I'm speaking as a workaholic. I, at times where I've been working so much because I, again, I'm like just terrified of not having money, but I just, because it like feeds into each other of like working so hard, I've found then has fed into me just paying convenience fees for a lot of stuff, if that makes sense. That isn't, that's, you know, that's why you're, that's why I, per, I'm not going to say you because it's me personally, like why I am Amazon priming the tiniest things. <laughs> Do you know I what I know. mean? But it's, it's just because I'm rushing around. Yeah, well, I have my excuse is that I live on a small island and I can't get easily everything I want. It's not so. your own island. Let's just clarify because we had someone on this show that lives on their <laughs> own island. Vicky lives on a, a, a community. It's an island with multiple houses. <laughs> it's not an island <laughs> where it's, yeah, she doesn't own the island. Um, <laughs> so, okay, I also want to talk about another part of your book that I that really made me think a lot when you were talking about how if you think you don't have any money and then if you look around you, what the things around you cost, like how you go, oh, well, I don't have any like physical money or I don't have any money in my bank account or whatever. But in the book you talk about like, well, what is the table in front of you cost? What is the, what is this cost? What does that cost? Like, and so you start to realize like the things around you that have, that have monetary value and that you're not, you're actually not completely hopeless, if that makes sense. Can you explain that a little bit for them? Well, there's a difference between money and wealth, you know, and mm. a lot of people do not understand the difference between money and wealth. Money is like flows through your system. It comes in, you spend it, and it goes, you know, it goes away, you know, so you have constant flow through your system. Wealth is when you've captured, you've taken some of that money and you've put it into something, whether it's a bank account or investment account or, you know, a house or a table or something. And so it's actually embodied money. And, mm -hmm. you know, once, once you've driven your car home, you know, it's like, 
<laughs> what is it? 30% of the value is gone. You know, 30% right. of your money is gone. But that car is embodied money. It's wealth. And mm-hmm. so one way you can get the wealth out of the car is you can sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could lend it for a little donation, you know. And it's like a lot of things that we own can be, and this is what Airbnb is about. You own something and then you can actually turn it into money if you rent it, you know, like your guest right. room. So, yeah, it's sort of like when you put money into things and put into your wealth, it's buried and you don't think about it. Yeah, it was this idea that, yeah, that you're sitting on more money than you than you think that you are. Yeah, and you can mobilize that if you want to. I mean, I think that you're, the section of the book that you're referring to is when people do a, a balance sheet. And part of the balance sheet is to really look at everything they own and put a dollar value on it, you know, according to what they could get from Craigslist, let's say. Yeah, on Um, everything, which is super helpful to do. Totally, because then you, number one, you see, oh, my God, I have spent so much money, and I don't Mm -hmm. use 90% of it. (laughs) You start to see how I own three blenders. (laughs) Yeah, like, how did that happen? I need all of them, Vicky. <laughs> well, it's I okay. Need every, I need every blender. I, that's not true. I could have used one of them. But yeah, no, I have, yeah, I have three blenders. That I think about that all the time. <laughs> but that, look at Gabby, if, if you actually <laughs> use the three blenders and one blender is for your shakes and another sure, blender yeah. is for, then that's great. Have three blenders. But if you don't use them, then, then mm-hmm. that, you or you could just look at these things and you could just like go like, that was a dumb purchase. Think I won't yeah. do that again. Yeah, and that's helpful if you have this balance sheet where you're sort of going through everything in your house and writing down what, not even like what you paid for it, but just like what its value is now. And then that's helped me too because I have sold a I I have like a real trigger finger for selling stuff. I still like love to just sell things in mass when I get nervous. <laughs> uh, and so that's why I have no books right now. Um, and so... Yeah, like I, it was helpful to be like, you know, if you're in a, if I, I was sort of in a panic and then you sit down and you do this sheet and you realize like, oh, okay, there's actually like things around this house that I'm not using that I can sell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like of the hundred things you sell, it, you might find out later that 10 of them you really wanted, but you know that you can replace those, especially if you buy them used. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, cause sometimes I know I'm a hoarder for some things, yeah. And I don't need to be a hoarder, um, but it's it's. Uh, I think it's really, you know, I think it's left over from when we lived out in the Tulies, and you're you're what the farmers called your back forty, you know, where you have all the rusting tractors. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. Your back forty is your wealth. You don't have to, you know, drive you know fifteen miles into town to get a screw because you have got. A bucket full mm-hmm. of nails and screws and stuff like that. So yeah. um, I have a little bit of that, and I think I got it, you know, somewhat from Joe because um, when we, when your money or life was out, we were part of this community household, and man, he was like totally a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> totally just a little, hoarder. <laughs> just of like little things like that you would need just in case. Oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I mean, he, he, when he was a kid, he, he like, 
And, you know, growing from Harlem, I mean, you know, he got his first screwdriver and he learned how to take things apart, you know, from clocks to his mother's mm -hmm. sewing machine. You know, and he had, you know, sewing machine parts. And, and every so often, you know, you'd need something and he'd go in and he'd have this mm -hmm. little left handed Bebel Fitzer screw and he'd go like, ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> so it's okay to hoard pieces. I guess is the moral of that. Well, it's just, you know, it's it's you know, part of this Gabby, a big part of this is that money because we live in money because we live in a society that is so money focused. Money is a beautiful meditation on who you really are, what you really want. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of things that we buy or have do not represent the thingness of them. They represent the feeling that the thing gives you, whether or not it's in that thing. Sure. But that's also looking at what what actually, like, it, it is a look at, like, what kind of person am I? What actually, like, means something to me? Yeah. What, what could I get rid of and be okay? You know what I mean? Yeah, but also, you know, to know I'm a person, you know, like, for example, I have this, like, closet full of clothes, all of them from the thrift store. Mm -hmm. I love my clothes. I have, I remember where I got every single one of it. It is my costume. Yeah, and I will say thrift store, uh, there's this whole movement now of, like, how fast fashion is unethical and um, not environmentally friendly and blah, blah, blah. So now everyone's coming back to, like, thrifting and sharing clothes because of that. So, mm -hmm. Vindicated. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> right. So, I mean, but I understand, like, you know, some of my clothes are, you know, being on television clothes and it's professional. You know, I right. they each have a feeling as well as a materiality. I actually get dressed in the morning. This This is TMI, but I get dressed in the morning for feeling, not for practicality. <laughs> <laughs> for what you, for how you feel that day. Well, I'm sure a lot of people agree with that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a way for us to understand that um, sometimes a thing is the best way to have a particular feeling like security. But maybe, you know, I could get security from things that were far less energy intensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about the light. This is the other thing from your book that I love is the life energy equals money thing, viewing money as life energy. Right. Yeah. So the first piece of that, you know, your life energy really is the tick tock, you know, the seconds of your life. Yep. It's, you know, and it's limited and we none of us know what our end point is, but when you're born, you're going to have one. Yeah. I used to I used to say, let's say you have 75 years, but I'm almost 75. So we don't talk about this anymore. <laughs> we talk about 90. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so, but it's not like I have 120. And a third of that time, in theory, you're going to sleep unless you're, you know, young and obsessive. And then sure. Maybe. But, um, yeah, a third of the time you're going to sleep and 
and you know, then you have a certain percentage of your time that's just the daily stuff, you mm-hmm. know, cooking and cleaning and da da da. So your disposable time, the time you have to do everything you want to do, to date and mate and have children, to be a mother, father, sister, brother, aunt, uncle. To travel, to read to, books. To travel, yeah. to read books, to develop your skills, and to basically learn about the world and participate politically with some sure. vestige of intelligence. All of that has to happen in a in a relatively small, small amount of time, mm-hmm. especially if you're unconscious with your money. So that unconsciousness eats up those hours of your life that you could use in another way. So that's the first thing to know. So it's like you you ask, well, how much of my life energy, you know, how much of my time am I spending to make money? You know, and so that calculation, you go like, okay, I'm curious. I have a job that pays me $30 an hour. Right. But... A quarter of that will go to taxes. Okay, get rid of that. Uh Um, You know, a a certain amount will go to eating lunches, you know, at the deli by work because I didn't bring my lunch. So, you know, like anything that you do, you know, you buy to support your job, you know, extra education, whatever, membership in whatever clubs or trade associations, all of that needs, it chips away at that $30 an hour. And then... There's the other side of it, which is the time spent. So I'm getting $30 an hour for the hours I'm at work, but then that doesn't account for a whole bunch of other hours in my day or week that is actually Mm work-related. So people do this life energy calculation, and average over a gazillion people, is they find that their real hourly wage, their disposable income, the money that they have in their pocket they can spend on all the things they want and need is about a quarter of their nominal salary. So let's say, you know, then you've whittled it down um, to $7.50 an hour. Mm -hmm. So you go out and buy something that costs $7.50, that's an hour of your life. That's a shock. And, And so you stand there and, you know, and you're about to, you know, it's Saturday, you're going out shopping with your friends, you see right. this really cute blouse, it's $30. Oh, my God, it's down for $60. It's really a steal. I really love it. Red's my color. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And then you go like, wait a second, that's four hours of my life. Yes. So this was what was fascinating to me is thinking about the things that you own as time, as hours of your life, which is which like shook me. It's just a different way of thinking about it that, like, hadn't occurred to me at all. Yeah. Like public speaking, you know. I mean, and, you know, like most women, it's been difficult to assert that I'm worth as, you know, as much as the basic marketplace. But but let's say, you know, I get $2,000 for, Mm -hmm. like, a keynote. And you could go, Mm -hmm. like, holy moly, that's $2,000 an hour. But, you know, there's three, it's three days, you know, I have to fly there, I have to mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. There's, you know, things I'm setting aside, then it's the other, you know, day or two to prepare my speech. So, mm-hmm. you know, you start to take a look at that $2,000 for a speech and you realize, no, I think I'm probably about $30 an hour. I mean, as an author, I've gotten advances. I think I make $10 an hour as a writer. 
Yeah. <laughs> when you break down the advance, yeah, for sure. <laughs> or even like people that drive, it makes me think of, you know, people that drive Lyft or stuff like that where you can really break down like how much you're you're making per per hour and then it but then it also translating for me it was translating that to the thing so like oh i want to buy this mug the mug is ten dollars okay is i love and then it's not not getting it because i would go yeah this mug is absolutely like i love it it's so cute this is absolutely worth an hour of my life you know what i mean exactly that's the key so it's not not doing it's not depriving yourself it's just thinking about it yeah and and it can it can lead, at least for a short period of time, to a sort of bounce. Like, you know, you go to ascetic, you know, like, I don't yeah. buy anything. And then you go like, whoa, I hate Gabby. I hate Vicky. I'm going to buy this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you go through this ping-pongy thing. But even that is a piece of self-knowledge. You watch yourself. I mean, the witness is so important. You watch yourself going through all this ping-pongy stuff. You're like, what am I doing? What do I what do I think I'm doing? And who am I impressing? You know, mm-hmm. who am I rebelling against? You know, who's the audience for these crazy choices I'm making? Who am I oh, feeding? Oh god. Yeah, who is the audience? And also but also like and then it's kind of more in my experience of of thinking this way a little a little bit more lately, it's been interesting to be like it, it almost feels more satisfying than like I bought these pins that I wanted. Um and it was like nice cuz they were I don't know, they were like 8 bucks. But I was like this is oh like of yeah, I can get these because let's say like I wrote an article, they paid me $100 for it. These pins are absolutely worth like uh one tenth of that article, definitely. Totally. Like but just it's like thinking of it in this different way lately in the last I would say like couple months that has been that ha- that hasn't stopped me from buying things, but it's like maybe a little, but it's like definitely made me more conscious, which is, I think, always a good thing. Like, it's 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 cleaner a little bit, I think. I think so. I think so. And it's, it's yeah, I love hearing you say that consciousness is not a bad thing. I mean, consciousness, I think, is like, you know, one of the ultimate things. Yeah. If it's a thing at all. Um, but people, uh, I think you get, you if you've been unconscious, and if it's unconsciousness is your way of hiding behavior from yourself that you were if you were conscious you wouldn't want to do mm-hmm. then to be conscious seems like a punishment it seems like mom just opened the door yeah. and found me smoking mm-hmm. <laughs> you know consciousness feels you know um it feels like you know party's over you know yeah that's why in your money your life we have this mantra no shame no blame yeah mm-hmm. just like consciousness is so much fun if you don't have the secondary reaction of guilt yeah you're like woohoo look at me i just blew it yeah (laughs) because if you're conscious that you blew it at the moment you blew it number one if you're a writer you have another experience to including your writing you can Uh always use that excuse oh god yeah (laughs) But but you and number two, you have compassion for all the people who are blowing it left, right and center. But number three, you have a choice. That's if you're not conscious, you have no choice. If you're conscious, you have a choice. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I have one other thing to say about the fire movement. Oh, please. Yeah. Because because you're a movement person. I mean, you're you have a radical bent is I I make a 
a distinction between a movement and a trend. Yeah. And a trend is a social construct mm-hmm. that comes and goes. That You know, it's like short skirts, long skirts, short skirts, long yeah. skirts, wide ties, skinny ties. But there's always a subculture in, in American society, all the way from the Puritans and the Transcendentalists, etc., that pay attention to minimizing spending and maximizing happiness. That's just sort of a standing wave through society. Yeah, there's always kind of a group of people doing that. Yeah, but it's not a movement because it's not questioning the power structure. You know, I used to wonder why could, you know, like we would tally up all the TV and all the everything that we were on. We reached a half of the country. You know, and I wondered, why are they not coming after us? They come after like 16 people who stand outside the state house. But because we had no power analysis, we were not challenging the power structure. We were giving people tools to question consumerism in their own lives. But we were not radically political about the mechanisms that... Or why this is the case. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, we would say why it's the case, but we were solving it at an individual level. And in the United States, there's a lot of latitude for individuals to do any crazy thing they want. Oh, of course. But then once it becomes sort of a political movement, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this show, I go back and forth between personal stuff like this and political big, you know, big picture stuff. But I don't think this isn't political big picture. I think this is a thing that if everybody was doing, like, then all of a sudden people would be real upset because it would have an effect on the economy. You know, what if everyone in a town was on that spreadsheet that me and my friends were on? You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. it is it is a bigger political it is it is a, a middle ground between the individual stuff that the individual like tips and tricks and things to do for your life. Um, and it is also a larger sort of anti-capitalist thing. So it does kind of fit the middle ground that I think bad with money exists in, you know, I agree. I agree. Totally. Um, and it's hippy dippy stuff, which I love. <laughs> I'm glad you love that even now. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it is radical. So the other thing I am doing is I'm playing a a longer game. You know, I I was playing a shorter game. I thought we were going to solve consumerism within ten years. I thought we were going to just yeah. like, bust that thing. That didn't happen. But the longer game is looking at sustainability and looking at environmental degradation, looking Mm -hmm. at ecological footprint. You know, it's really quite difficult to have a sustained focus on that. But, you know, now everybody's talking about climate change, you know. And, you know, what we're seeing in the Midwest, what we saw in, what we're seeing in Puerto Rico, you know, we just understand that, that the sort of background hum of industrial growth society is you just feel like the engine is getting, you know, it's not, it's, it's just having hiccups. Yeah. And so I think, you know, in the longer term, this reciprocity, mutuality, localism, consciousness with resources, reskilling, you mm-hmm. know, learning how to do stuff, all of that is present happiness and future necessity I think no I agree I love I love reskilling but that might be just because I'm like in my 30s and I'm like what can I take up welding do people weld like I'm just trying to like get into totally. like just 
I think like also post election, I'm like the world's ending. I gotta learn how to like start a fire. <laughs> I gotta learn. <laughs> exactly. I gotta learn to camp. Like things are going real south. <laughs> I think that's that's one of the reasons why millennials are so into fire. The fire movement is is not just building a campfire, but you know both. Because save your money, learn how to make rub two sticks together. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we feel it. We can feel it. For it's sure. your nervousness. And I think you're doing exactly the right thing. Oh, thanks. Yeah. You can get Vicky's book at yourmoneyoryourlife.com. This show is a book club now. Watch out, Oprah. You think you're the only one who can get people on the bestseller list? You actually are. I'm so sorry. Also, check out Vicky's personal blog at VickiRobin.com. That's Vicky with an I. I really, really related to the circle of we. And so this week, let's do an optional homework assignment. Try to replace one thing that you would have bought with a favor from a friend and offer up something to one of your friends so they can avoid spending money. Maybe it's, it's letting someone borrow an outfit or making enough lunch to share with a friend at work or I don't know. Let me know on Twitter what you do. But I really, really think that the circle of we is something that we need to bring back. I, I just think it's so cool. And if you want to take my spreadsheet idea with your friends, uh, you definitely should because it's been super helpful. So, yeah, let's let's get into community. Wow. Not only are we socialists, but we're hippies now, too. <laughs> Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres, and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll talk to you next week. Peace! Peace!